once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When someone says the word righteous or righteousness, what comes to mind? And if you want to be righteous in a biblical sense, how does that happen? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Imago Dei with the first part of this sermon entitled Image Bearing and Our Neighbor, Becoming a People of Righteousness which covers Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've been with us, you know we've been in the series called Imago Dei, which means image of God. And originally, we were going to end it today. This would be the eighth and final week of the series. I'm actually going to break this week into two parts, so we'll, we'll carry it through next weekend. And, uh, and so it ended up being a nine-week series. And if you remember two weeks ago, some of you are with, were with us then, where uh, I introduced this next part of the series where I said that we're going to be getting into the implications of God's Imago Dei, the, the image of God within us as it pertains to our neighbor. And so the, the sermon two weeks ago was entitled, uh, Image Bearing in Our Neighbor with the subtitle, Becoming a People of Mercy. And then Caleb, we had a little bit of a caveat due to my schedule last week where Caleb uh, taught uh, profoundly on uh, what it means to to be image bearers with our work and how work is redemptive and all that God is doing through creation and what he uh, purposed for us in our work and how that is a way in which we image God. Uh, But I want to come back this week and next week to back to this image Uh, bearing the image of God as it pertains to our neighbor. And the subtitle this week and next will be uh, Becoming a People of Righteousness. And that's a word, righteousness, that uh, we don't use a whole lot in our common cultural vernacular. Uh, That's not a word that I throw around a lot outside of religious conversations, outside of Christian conversations. The Bible certainly speaks to it a lot, which we'll talk about in a moment. But in our everyday language out there, it's just not a word that we use all that often. In fact, when we do use it, it's usually in, in more of a, uh, of a silly way, if you might, uh, in, in the years past. And I'll give you a few examples. When I Googled righteousness and cultural use, and this is what came up. The first one was, uh, not me, but that guy, righteous dude from uh, Finding Nemo, the turtle that was, you know, the hippie that helped Nemo get on the right uh, waterway or whatever it was. Been a while since I've seen that movie. Then these guys came up. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. These are the righteous time travelers. You can tell what era I grew up in if that's showing up in something that resonated with me. There's Grace, the great character in Ferris Bueller's Day Off with her wonderful line about Ferris. He's a righteous dude. And then there's this, perhaps a little bit for those of you who have been around a little bit longer than me, the Righteous Brothers. Although I will say this, I stole my dad's Righteous Brothers CD when I was in high school because I loved Unchained Melody and I loved uh, You've Lost That Love and Feeling because I also loved Top Gun. And that song was in that. So that's how I got to know the Righteous Brothers. This is kind of how we tend to use the word righteous uh, in these ways that don't necessarily get us to the definition of what God means when he says righteous. And what we'll see today, I'm going to use a lot of scripture, so I want you to bear with me, but we're going to see that God speaks a lot about being righteous, both in his character and as it pertains to us, those made in his image. He talks a lot about righteousness almost always in a positive way. 
Oftentimes when we think of righteousness in a, in a uh, spiritual context, if you've been in or around the church for a while, your first thought might be to the more negative sense of how we might use it, where we put the word self in front of it. And we talk about self-righteousness, and that's the manifestation of righteousness in a way that we don't want, where we're putting ourselves at the center of the definition that we think very arrogantly, very pridefully, that we are the ones who are getting it right, and no one else is. But when we look at the Word of God, time and time again, we see God defining himself as righteous. And he is a God who created out of his righteousness a people who are also to be righteous. And I said this two weeks ago as I introduced this understanding of imaging God in light of who he is, is that we want to image him in all of his various facets of his character. And his character is a bit like if you were to turn a diamond and as you spin it, you're going to have the light hit it in different ways and there's going to be different ways in which you begin to see that diamond in new beauty. And so God in his character is a bit like that, where you look at him in this particular way and you see uh, the characterization, the attribute of his grace. You turn again and you see his mercy. You turn again and you see his, uh, his purity. You see his peace. You see his love. You see all these things. One of the things that we see as we turn is we see his righteousness. And as people made in the image of God, what we are to be in our original creation was to be a people who imaged him in his righteousness that we would be a people that in every way begin to look more and more like him. So if we're going to image him, this is a part of how we image him. I want to give you a definition of righteousness. And, and I want to use a bit of a technical definition, very theological in nature, so don't get lost in it. I'll try to very uh, appropriately walk us through it. But this comes from, uh, from David Wright and Sinclair Ferguson and J.I. Packer, three um, legends, if you will, within our within our theological grid. And uh, these guys put together this work called the New Dictionary of Theology. This is how they define righteousness as it's used in the Bible. They say the basic meaning of righteousness and its cognates in the Bible derives from the Hebrew sedek. Okay, so two words, the Hebrew, which is the Old Testament. Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And then, which is usually translated in the Greek, which your, your New Testament is written originally in Greek, which is the... And I always... I always mispronounce this, dekaiosene, I think is how it goes, but we'll go with it and you act like I know I'm saying it correctly, okay? I'm terrible at pronouncing Greek. But that's unimportant. What's important is the definition. And here's the definition of these words used in the, in the Hebrew and in the Greek. It denotes as right standing and consequent right behavior within a community. So the right standing piece is that what God is speaking about when he talks about righteousness in the Bible is he's first talking about the ability to stand before him as humans in right standing, in righteousness, in the right way, if you will, fully acceptable, that we would be pleasing to God. That's another way of saying righteousness. But that there's an outworking of the righteousness that is within us the righteousness of God within us. And that would be then what it, the way in which we live. So it's our right standing and then through us, that's in us, and then through us, it's our right living within the context of the community that God has placed us in. So they continue and say this, English translates this semantic field with two different roots. 
So you're either going to see this word always translated in the Bible, either in one of two ways. You're either going to see it translated with the root word right, which then there comes righteousness and righteous and righteousness, or you're going to see it translated just as being the root word, therefore playing out into justice, justify, and justification. Then they say this, in Hebrew and in Greek, however, these ideas all belong together linguistically and theologically. So that's a lot. That's a lot in that definition. Here's what I want to boil it down to. I want to get back to the implication of this word biblically and say that this is where our focus is going to be the next two weeks. First, the first focus today is going to be as it pertains to our right standing before God. Righteousness in us. How could we be a people redeemed by God to then be righteous? How does that even begin to look in us? And the next week, part two of this, will be beginning to think about the application of what does that look like through us? What does it look like to bear the fruit of God's righteousness through us in the way that we live to the world around us? So righteousness in us is this week, righteousness through us next week as we think about imaging God inwardly and outwardly as it pertains to righteousness. So here's the grid. We have to keep coming back to this grid that I've been giving us throughout the series that we have been calling the five pillar gospel. And if you'll remember, uh, maybe you haven't been with us, so this will be great for you to see for others, a great review. But when we talk about the five pillar gospel, what we're saying is that from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of the Bible until the very end, when God gave us his written word to understand what is it that he's up to. This is what he's up to. We can break it into five primary pillars, if you will. The first one is creation, starting in Genesis 1, that he created all things perfect and good to be reflective of who he is, to be the ones in which exist for his glory. And so everything that he creates is pure. Everything that he creates is undefiled, uncorrupted. Most specifically, of course, that's true of all creation, but most manifested in terms of the image of God in us, that we are the image bearers. In our relationship with God upon creation, that first pillar of the gospel, is that there is nothing corrupted about our relationship with God. There is nothing corrupted about our existence. There is nothing defiled about us. There is nothing marred about us. And in every way, we reflect the image of God perfectly and in a great way to where he is pleased with us. So one of the ways in which we were originally created is we were created as righteous, meaning we were in right standing with God. He looked upon us, And there was nothing about our existence that separated him from us that caused him in any way to look upon man and woman and say, there is any reason whatsoever that I shouldn't be with you in communion with you, walking with you in the garden, uh, being with you intimately because you're righteous. You're acceptable in my sight. Now, we get to the second pillar of the gospel. And sin comes into the world and we fall into sin. That's why we call it the fall. What are we doing at the fall? What's happening at the fall? What are we losing with the fall? Well, namely, namely we're losing our righteousness. We're losing that that oneness that we had with Christ, with God. 
We're losing that ability to be able to stand before him and with him and be accepted, to be right. We are now the exact opposite of who God is because of our embracing of sin. We are now unrighteous. That's the state of who humanity is as soon as Genesis 3 happened. As soon as Adam and Eve in their unrighteousness didn't trust the righteousness of God and took of that fruit. When we talk about the righteousness of God at creation, when we talk about the righteousness of God, period, in all of his existence throughout eternity, this is what we're speaking to. Psalm 119 says this about God. And by the way, I'm going to read this one verse, but there are, uh, I don't even know how to begin to count how many verses throughout the scriptures speak to the righteousness of God. Here's just one example. Psalm 119, 137 and 138 says this, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. So one of the things that we gather about God when we try to define what does it mean that God is righteous, one of the things that we gather about God is this. God being righteous means two things primarily. It means first that he is right in all of his ways. There's never an exception. He is always right. Secondly, his judgments are always just. He is always right. His judgments are always just. This is who we see God to be over and over and over again, both in the scriptures and in the human experience. He is right and his judgments are always just. So what does that mean is true of us as a result of the fall? It means what we've lost is we've lost our righteousness, which means natural to ourselves now is this reality that we're not right in the way that God is right. We define rightness in a different way. Our righteousness is not his righteousness. Our righteousness is a false righteousness. It's a self-righteousness. It's a, it's a me, glorify me, centered on me, make me the, the, the center of the story type of righteousness. It's not about God. It's not about him. It's not about his righteousness. He's the one who's always right. And even though we think we're right, we're always wrong. And a part of our unrighteousness is not, not only that, but that our judgments are not just. The fall has wrecked us in more ways than we could begin to imagine. But there's good news. There's good news of the third pillar, which is the third pillar of redemption, which tells us that, yes, we are wrecked by sin in ways that we can never fully fathom, but we are redeemed by Jesus fully and completely in ways that we could never fathom. Listen to what God tells us about the fall in Romans. I want, I want to press this in before we sink our teeth into the redemptive work of Jesus. Losing our righteousness in the fall, Romans 3, 10 through 12. This is what the Apostle Paul says about this. And he's quoting the Psalms. He's quoting from Old Testament scripture where he says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a fun verse to read. Is it really this bad? The Bible says yes. What happened at the fall was not humanity making a mistake. What happened at the fall was not humanity just kind of making a goof that God goes, ooh, that's not so good there, but, you know, 
you really get your act together, you can, you can get back to where you were. What happened at the fall is what was implanted into every single one of us because of what happened in the garden. We then function with the same exact nature as Adam and Eve to where we buck against the righteousness of God to the extent that no one is righteous. No, not one. Our issue, the issue of humanity is not that we're bad people and need to be good. The issue of humanity, according to Scripture, is that we're dead and need to be made alive. The issue is that we're unrighteous and have no hope of righteousness apart from Christ. Listen to what Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 1. It says, For the wrath of God is, re- is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness... Suppress the truth. There's good news coming, I promise, but I just want to sit in this for a moment because I don't know that we fully get how bad the bad news is. And if we don't sit there, then the good news just becomes news. Good news is only good when weighed against bad news. And the bad news is this. The wrath of God is upon us. Because of our sin, because of our unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and that's us, that's humanity. Ever since the garden, we are a people who operate with the same rhythm as our first parents, Adam and Eve. What Romans 1 tells us is that there's this rhythm that happens in the human heart, in the human existence. And the rhythm is this, that we suppress the truth of God and we exchange it for a lie. We suppress the truth of God, exchange it for a lie. And this is the the rhythm of our heart. This is the rhythm of our existence. Suppress the truth of God, exchange it for a lie. Suppress the truth of God, exchange it for a lie. And you look out in the world around us and you even look inwardly at your own heart. And if we're honest, we say, how can we not say that's true? That's not true. We, it is absolutely true. It is, it is the rhythm of humanity to exchange, suppress the truth of God and exchange it for a lie. It's been that way ever since Genesis 3. What did Adam and Eve do? They suppressed the truth of God and exchanged it quite tangibly for a lie manifested in this fruit that they held in their hands. This is what we do. And then, because this is what we do, we begin to think the lie. We begin to believe and embrace the lie that there's something we can do about it. Because innately, inherently, deep within us, we know something's broken. We understand that there's something deeply wrong in us and around us. And so, naturally, as humans go, we try to make up for it. We try to be better people. We try to get our act together. We try to... to, Uh, to get righteous, to be righteous. But listen to what the Word of God says in Romans 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. That's the same Greek word. can be translated either justified or made righteous. What it's getting at is to render righteous or such as he ought to be. One of the definitions, by the way, of that Greek word 
that I have such a hard time pronouncing. One of the definitions is this. I love this definition. Man and woman becoming again what they ought to be. It's righteousness. It's what we were originally created to be. Righteous before God. Listen to what this verse is saying. For by works of the law, no human being will be made righteous in the sight of God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And knowledge of sin condemns us. And even though we think and buy the lie that there's something that we can do to make us better. To make us get to that place to where we can be seen as righteous again. We can't. It's a lie. There is no hope. But, very next verse, the glory of the good news of the redemptive work of Jesus. Very next verse, verse 21, Romans 3, 21 says this, but now. I hope you circle those words. I hope you imprint them on your mind because often in Scripture, when you see that conjunction, but there is a turn in the story There is an emphasis on what only God can do. And here it is. But now the righteousness of God that we cannot get back to, that we cannot attain, even though we were originally created to have it, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from anything you and I could ever do. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God One thing, it's attainable only through one thing. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's through faith in Jesus, the righteous one. Listen to the rest of the passage. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift You don't earn a gift, you receive it. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith and faith alone. It's only by faith. It's only by trust in the one who was righteous in our place. It's only by trust in the one who was righteous on our behalf, keeping the law that we could never keep. Why would God do this? Don't miss this part. This is why. It's to show God's righteousness. That we would see and know and experience and live in and image the righteousness of God that we were originally created to be and to behold and to possess. I love this from Paul as well. Galatians 2, 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification, also translated righteousness, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. One more verse I want to give you. And then a little bit of application. Let it be so now. This is Matthew 3, 15. Let it be so now. Now let me give you the context before I read it actually. This is when Jesus is about to get baptized by John the Baptist. He's beginning his ministry And he's asking John the Baptist to baptize him. And John the Baptist is pushing back, saying, no, 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 you should be baptizing me. And this is what Jesus responds with. Very short and simple, but very profound. He says, let it be so now. 
For thus it is fitting for us, a nod at the Trinity, to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying to John the Baptist, this is why I came. I have to fulfill all righteousness that you lost. And part of that is that your baptism is my baptism. I have to share with you in everything as the righteous one. Not being baptized because I'm sinful and need redemption. And renewal, I'm being baptized so that I am the righteous one in your place. The purified one. R.C. Sproul, the great late theologian, he said this about that verse, about Matthew 3.15. He said, I don't think there's any more important text in all the New Testament that defines the work of Jesus than this one. That Jesus was sent to fulfill all righteousness. So how, here's the question. How is he then fulfilling all righteousness for us? Two simple things, two simple but yet Thick things, significant things, things that we need to sit in and dwell on and not just go, okay, that sounds good, but really think about what all Christ has has done on our behalf. The first one is this. Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness for us in that he is our passive righteousness. Here's how Sproul defines that. He says, the passive obedience of Christ refers to his willingness to submit to the pain that is inflicted upon him by the Father on the cross in the atonement. He passively receives the curse of God there on the cross. So do you remember back? The wrath of God is upon mankind against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's Romans 1.18. And we see that what we see throughout the storyline that God gives us from the beginning to the end is that, that the curse is upon humanity. But that Romans 4 gets into talking about how, but it's through faith that we are credited as righteous and that Abraham is the one who first did this, who believed upon God and it was credited to him as righteous. There's this belief, there's this faith on the finished work of God that removes the curse from us and places it on Jesus. The only one who ever walked the face of the earth as righteous and didn't deserve the curse, God puts it on him. And the blessing, the blessing of a righteous son, fully and completely beloved and accepted and adored, is placed on us. It's what theologians call the double imputation where he gets our sin, he gets the curse of sin, and we get his righteousness. But there's another thing that Jesus does in fulfilling all righteousness for us, and that's his active righteousness on our behalf. Jesus is our active righteousness. Listen to how Sproul says this. He says the active obedience or righteousness refers to his whole life, the whole life of Jesus on earth, of obeying the law of God, whereby he qualifies to be the Savior. He qualifies to be the Lamb without blemish. He qualifies for the very song that we sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain through his total righteousness. He fulfills the law's demands. And then I love, I love how Sproul says this. Jesus not only had to die for our sins, he had to live for our righteousness. He not only had to die for our sins, he had to live 
for our righteousness. This is why this is so important. Where does this, where does this break down practically? Where does it hit us applicationally? For the believer, listen to me. If you've believed upon Christ, I want you to hear something. I want you to hear that in my experience, both in my own life and own heart, and in the, in the relationships that I have as I've done ministry over the years and talked to people, what I see time and time again is that we believe and embrace the passive righteousness of Christ, but we don't fully either understand, grasp, or believe the active righteousness of Christ. Here's what I mean. The first part, the passive righteousness of Christ. We get that pretty well because if I were to come up to you and I were to say, hey, tell me what is the good news of Jesus? What is the good news of the gospel according to the Bible? Many of us, if not most of us, would likely say something along the lines of, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and therefore my sins are forgiven. And by the way, don't mishear me. That's enough in and of itself to sing for all of eternity to the praise and the glory of God. It's amazing. I'm not, I'm not lessening the, the, the amazement that we could be forgiven, that the curse would be removed from us because of the work of Jesus. But there's a second component to what's happening here with the righteousness of God that it's not just that the unrighteousness of who we are has been removed and therefore the curse with it, but that there's been a righteousness imputed to us, declared to be true of us, that is now our possession through what Christ has done on our behalf. It's his active righteousness, meaning, here, don't miss this, it means that that what he did on our behalf, the perfect attainment of the law, the sinlessness, the full rightness of Jesus is declared to be true of us as well through faith in him. So that, this is the, this is the implication, so that we become a people that don't just sit in this place and settle into this place that says, I'm forgiven and tolerated. Because many of us live there. Many of us who believe upon Jesus, we really think, yes, I'm forgiven, but then we don't appropriate the second great truth of the gospel. We say, I'm forgiven, but man, he begrudgingly did that, and I bet he just tolerates me with this frown and this scowl upon his face because I just can't get my act together, and there's no way that I'm righteous. And so, yeah, I'm forgiven, but man, I don't go to God much because I know he's disappointed. But what does the gospel say? What does the fullness of the gospel say inwardly for us with the righteousness of Christ? It says the unrighteousness of who you are has been forgiven, but the righteousness of who Jesus is has been given to you as if it were your own. To where when God looks at you, he doesn't just forgive you and tolerate you. He forgives you and adores you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine because when he sees you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees his righteousness. He sees the finished work of Jesus and he says, you are right. You, are, you can stand. Remember what was the definition of, of righteousness? The ability to stand in the presence of God and be right, to be accepted, to be approved of. So that when God looks at you and me, he sees us as righteous, the righteousness of the very son of God himself. What an unbelievably glorious truth. 
that should never grow tired or weary in our hearts, that we would be in a place to where we would commonly and daily and continuously come back to this place of awe and wonder that the God of the universe would look upon me through the lens of the finished work of Jesus and say, righteous. And what he's done, friends who are in Christ, is he's placed now the righteousness of Christ within us so that we would be able to once again, just like before the fall, image him in his righteousness. To image him in that character trait of our glorious God of righteous. When I was on staff with, with crew, campus ministry, at the University of Alabama, we had a five-year stretch where every spring break we would take a group of students to New York City for ministry and, and uh, engagement there with college students on the various campuses throughout New York. We had crew staff that were there full-time, and we would just spend a week coming alongside of them, going out on campus with them, just trying to have spiritual conversations, see who might be interested in this great gospel message. We'd stay for six days, and four of our days were on campus doing that, but we always made two days because we knew, man, these are college students. Many of them have never been to New York. They need to, to see New York. Enjoy the city. So we always had a list of things that just tourists do in New York. And always on that list every year was to go to the top of the Empire State Building. And the first year that we went, uh, I remember I had not been to the top of the Empire State Building. And so I was so excited. I couldn't wait to take these students up there along with our other staff. And as we chaperone and look over them, I, mean, I can't wait to, for all of us to go to the top of this skyscraper and to, and to see what we're going to see. And part of it was that I get to stand on this, this famous landmark in New York. But the real thing is the view. And we get up there, and I, I'm, I'm afraid of heights. But I lost my fear in the presence of, of this view. I start looking around, and I start seeing all this. I mean, the, the, the day we went up that first time, it was just so clear, and I could see forever. And I look south, and way off in the distance, I see the Statue of Liberty. And just up from, uh, up, uh, from it, just a little bit, you see the, the One World uh, Trade Center. And then uh, over here to the left, you see the Brooklyn Bridge. And then over across from it, naturally, you see Brooklyn. And then you look down here, and you can kind of see where Wall Street is and the Flatiron Building. And then you come over this way, and you see New Jersey, and you turn really quick this way. And um, I'm joking if you're from New Jersey. There's just not much to see there when you look across. And then you look, then you look north and you see the Central Park and you see all the things around it. You look down here and you, and you can tell where Times Square is. And then you can even look up and kind of see Harlem up over here and Queens up over here. And, and all you want to do is just keep taking it in because it's glorious and it's beautiful. And the view has enraptured you and you don't want to come down. But eventually somebody comes and says, hey, we got to go. And you go down begrudgingly because the view gets you. And the second year, I couldn't wait to go back up again because I couldn't wait to tell people, you got to see this view. you got to see what I've seen. But the third year, I started thinking more selfishly. I was like, I mean, I've seen that. You go up and you kind of see it and you go back down. Okay, what's next? In the fourth year, you go up again, and you go, okay, and you kind of stand in the corner while everybody else is ooing and eyeing, and you don't really know. And then the fifth year, I didn't even go at all. 
And my fear is that's what exactly what happens with the gospel for those who've been in church for a long time. Is that we've been to the skyscraper of our heart to be in awe and wonder of the view of the grace of God manifested for, it, for us in the righteousness of Jesus. And at first we are amazed and we don't want to come down from that view and we are blown away by it. And we want to tell everybody, say, you've got to see this view with me of this righteousness of Jesus on my behalf. But the longer we sit in church, the more we think it's about our religiosity, the more that we think it's about our goodness. And we stumble back into this place of self-righteousness and we're not going increasingly to the top of the skyscraper of our heart to view and be enamored with and be in awe of the righteousness of Jesus on our behalf, given to us as if it were our own, so much so that what we do in imaging the righteousness of God to our neighbor is that we tell them about the view. You got to see this Jesus. You got to see what he's revealed to us through the scriptures. You got to understand what he's done for us. Come summon it with me. Let's go up together and let's be profoundly amazed at the finished work of Jesus on our behalf together. Would you come? Would you see with me? Every day in the life of a Christian is a call to go up to the top of the skyscraper of our heart and be amazed afresh anew at the finished work of Jesus in our place. For those of you that don't know if you follow Jesus, don't know if all this is true, that's the call upon your life. That you would let the God of the universe take you to the heights of his grace to look down upon the finished work of Jesus. That you, through faith in him, may be declared righteous. It's the hope of the gospel. So this week, we talk about that inwardly. What does it look like to image God and his righteousness in us? Next week, we're going to talk about that. What does that look like to image God through us, to image his righteousness through us in the communities where he's placed us? Father, thank you for this great truth. Thank you for your grace that is unimaginable that you would look upon us and simply yet profoundly through simple faith in Jesus, we are seen as righteous yet again. We are forgiven of our sins. The curse has been lifted in the blessing the blessing of union with you, the blessing of communion with you, the blessing of eternity with you, the blessing of standing in your presence, fully righteous and complete, is ours. Oh God, would you give us the ability to go to the heights time and time again and take in the beauty and the majesty of what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.